What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney We're back for another episode of What Got You There where we dive deep with some of the world's most influential people Today we are joined by Brian McKenzie Brian is a human performance and movement specialist He is the innovator of the endurance strength and conditioning paradigm he has studied performance and movement since 2001 with altitude, hypoxia, breathing mechanics and methods, along with heat and cold exposure. He is a co-founder of XPT Life, along with big wave surfer Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. He has participated in Ironman and has run the Western States 100. He co-authored the book Power, Speed, Endurance and the New York Times bestseller Unbreakable Runner. He founded and created Power Speed Endurance, which specializes in movement and skill development with an emphasis in running, cycling, and swimming mechanics. He's also been a personal coach of mine and someone I've learned a great deal from. Brian, welcome to What Got You There. How are we doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. This one's going to be a lot of fun. So we usually focus on the backstory of our guests, but you're someone that can teach my listeners a great deal about improving their lives in the future. So I'd really like to focus on that today. So for my listeners who are not familiar with you, what is it that you do? Um, <laughs> that, that is a good question. It's a loaded one. <laughs> well, I, typically people know exactly what it is they do. I don't, you know, my wife is even pointed out, I don't even know what it is you do. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've done a lot of coaching. Um, I don't do a lot of coaching now. Um, although we, we have a website, we, um, run power speed endurance that deals with, uh, more or less kind of the coaching aspect. We've more or less worked how to streamline coaching onto a online forum to where we don't necessarily need the coach as involved. Um, that said, I'm kind of a, I'm more of a research and development guy. Um, and I, I, I screw around with things and I get obsessed about things and, um, I kind of evolve them or put them not, you know, I, I evolve them for myself or for where we kind of see the direction of something going. Um, for instance, like, you know, the power speed endurance model, um, which was my first book was more or less the paradigm shift of the endurance, uh, thinking in where, you know, we long, slow distance can work. Um, but it's not necessary. We, we shifted the paradigm in thinking like most endurance athletes don't do any strength and conditioning. That is not a true statement anymore. So we started that paradigm shift, um, to where we were really honing in on helping that. Um, we, you know, we were a part of the, a bigger part of that whole shift. And now it's more or less, we're moving into more of the human performance stuff, a lot of the breath work, recovery work and all of that. So I'm kind of a, I guess you could say a professional tinkerer. There you go. Yeah, your book, Power, Speed, Endurance, that's actually how I first became connected with you. Uh, loved reading that, learned a great deal from it, and that's a skill-based approach to endurance training. Uh, and then also your website there, Power, Speed, Endurance. Uh, we'll link that up in the show notes, but I need to send my listeners there because you guys provide so much valuable content. Uh, that's one you could just spend hours on watching the videos, reading articles, so great resource there. So, Brian, how do you start your day? Um, 
I usually get up somewhere between today. It was three thirty, but it, and I ended up going back to sleep for a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, usually, I'm up somewhere between four and six a.m. Just depending on when I wake up. I do not like alarms, um, and I don't. I, I like to kind of just let my body tell me when to wake up. Um, and then when I start, I usually go in and start with hyd- a hydration protocol that I use, which involves lemon juice, uh, apple cider vinegar, some salt, um, and probiotics. Um, and then, uh, I will do some coffee and then I get into some breathing stuff and depending on what I'm feeling like or what, with the direction I want to go, I alter the breath work or I'll actually start with a cold plunge or something like that. So you mentioned the salt, apple cider vinegar, and water. I actually started doing that as well once I heard you and Laird Hamilton talking about that. What is the science behind that, and what are the benefits? Uh, well, the apple cider vinegar is a long – like that. that's a huge, huge thing. It's an old, it, it, it's an old folk kind of remedy for taking something acidic into the body and the body neutralizing it and it helping kind of clear out a lot of stuff and there's a ton of stuff on the Googles that you can find with that. Um, but it's kind of along the same lines as, is, is lemon juice as well. Um, lemon juice provides a a, kind of an art, an acidic start to get your body to kind of neutralize something and you're on an empty gut. Um, and it helps kind of flush and digest a lot of things that may be left over. Um, that said, the I, I'm we're drinking probably in, in in the vicinity of like I don't know thirty ounces or more of water to start in the morning, um, and we've got salt in there as well in order to kind of help with the binding process of everything, so that we're not just drinking you know water per se. Yeah, it, it's more or less a way to start the day and being hydrated because if you've never seen how much water you uh, require through respiration or, or, or dispel through respiration, it's actually mind boggling. Um, you like in a one hour period, we've, we, like I've done, uh, this altitude training stuff where, you know, you, you put, you put a mask on your, on your face and it collects the water through the respiration when you're actually on the thing. And after an hour, it is like you've just dunked it in water. Um, so there's a ton of water loss that's, that, that happens through sleep. And yes, our greatest asset for thirst can become, uh, or, or water or dehydration is thirst. <laughs> um, but I like to start my day that way because it literally changed the way I operated throughout the day. Like I don't feel like I'm as dehydrated throughout the day and don't feel as thirsty throughout the day when I do this. No, I love how you prime the body and both the mind to set yourself up for a good day. What about the night before? Is there anything you're doing or are you just kind of passing out at night, not really thinking about it? Uh, yeah, I, my process starts probably around between seven and 8 PM. It just depends on when I feel kind of a downshift. Um, I, I've, I'm, I'm more of a very sympathetic, dominant, A-type personality person. So it requires me to a large degree because of a lot of the choices I've made prior to now 
um, that it, you know, I need to pay attention to that stuff because I've had sleep issues in the past based on stressing myself out and working too much and all of that. So I started down regulation process between seven and 8 PM at night. And usually I'm asleep before 9 PM. Um, so, and, and that can involve a tea that could, you know, non-caffeinated, um, that can involve just, you know, getting, stopping working, getting rid of my phone, going into the bedroom, um, laying down, maybe turning on a show or, um, just reading or something. Um, it's usually I turn on a show and I'm asleep within like three to five minutes. <laughs> Not a great, uh, Netflix watcher there, are you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we do, do enjoy the Netflix, but unfortunately like it takes us like, it usually takes us probably, I don't know three nights to get through a, a 30 minute episode sometimes. And then there's other times, you know, we, we spend more time, but the, but the fact is, is it's like, you know, when I go to bed, our, our bedroom is pretty much on lockdown and it's like, it's, it's like a dark cave. So there's nothing in there. Yeah, no, the blackout's great. And I, I love your down regulation. Uh, that was one of the things I needed to really work on. And that helped me tremendously shutting off the phone, getting away from that and just kind of letting my mind rest a little bit. So earlier you mentioned some of the breath work you do in the morning. Uh, I know you've helped me personally with my breath work and the benefits I've been seeing over the past few weeks has just been tremendous. So you want to talk a little bit about some of the benefits of having a breathing practice and some differences you noticed in your breath work? Certainly. Um, you know, because of, I think because of where we've gone and I can only speak, you know, based on my experience, um, you know, we could look back and research and, and look over history and time and, and, and speculate how, how man operated and, you know, how we survived and what we've done. And there's some obvious stuff there. One of those from a nutritional standpoint, I think that everybody kind of misses is the fact that we, we survived based on learning how to deal with famine because it was largely the largest thing that kept the population density down. Um, and this is something we don't deal with today at all. The only famine that we have is politically charged and, and, and through, and, and although that as horrific as that is, famine isn't a real thing. So, you know, we as a species have created disease and things based around the complete polar opposite of that, because we're now more sedentary. And this kind of goes into the breath work is, you know, being more sedentary, we sit more, um, we don't do as much. Um, a formal breathing pattern is really not established. And in, and in my experience over the last like five years or so, um, what I've noticed is whether you're an athlete or you are, you know, overweight, completely sedentary, um, or just completely inactive and, and elderly or a child is that we don't actually breathe real well. And you know, we, we tend to overbreathe as a, as a society, uh, based on the fact that we don't really carry a whole lot. We're not able to carry as much CO2 in the lungs that would create a more optimal space for ourselves. And by that, I mean that we, an optimal place is is greater than 5% CO2 in the lungs. An unoptimal place and where we start to see disease and problems start to arise is less than 5%. And 
there's there's a lot of easy ways to kind of tell what that how, where you fit in on that scale and and you know the listeners can look into a method called buteco which is an old russian method and they've done a ton of research and it's spelled b u t e uh y k o um and and they've done dr buteco did his his whole method was implemented into russian medicine in dealing with asthma and so largely what we see, and, and not all my research and understanding comes from this. It, there, there's a lot of places it comes from, but what I've noticed with myself, even before running into the Buteco method, was where my respiration rate had slowed down. And our respiration rate, the higher it is, the worse off we are. And 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 so when we get above really that kind of twelve or fifteen breaths a minute marker. We're in a we're in more of a chronic hyperventilation state, and so we like to look at hyperventilation as something that we don't know that's going on. So if you're doing something like the Wim Hof method, or a holotropic breathing, or like a breath of fire, which are all kind of hyperventilation techniques, we call these superventilation techniques because you're actually applying something, a reasoning to this to create a response to that. And so that said, that, that could sound kind of controversial in that, well, if I'm chronically hyperventilating, if I'm actually implementing a hype, you know, something like a superventilation, isn't that going to add more to it? And the short answer is no, it's actually going to help you a bit and, and kind of, it's going to slow down your respiration rate throughout the day because you're actually taking yourself through a process that creates this thing called the Bohr effect. And there's several ways of dealing with that. And Wim Hof method, which is one breathing practice, can help you deal with that to some degree. Um, and, and the Wim Hof method works real well because you do a superventilation technique, but you have to breath hold, which is where the Bohr effect takes effect <laughs> per se. So if I actually apply some superventilation where I breathe rapidly for, you know, 90 seconds, I'm going to create a euphoric effect. And that euphoric effect is going to happen because I'm creating vas vasoconstriction, which is where the blood vessels are constricting. And so I'm not allowing for the blood flow to be created. And therefore I'm, I'm saturating my red blood cells with oxygen. This is where we see blood oxygen levels get up to 100%. And that isn't necessarily a, a, a great thing, and, um, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. The reason it becomes a good thing is because we go to hold our breath after those rapid breaths, and we hold it for an extended period of time, which raises the CO2 and creates more of an acidic response. And this is where the Bohr effect happens where we actually signal for the red blood cells to release that oxygen into the system. And we now have blood vessel vasodilation. So all of those constricted blood vessels now start to open back up where the oxygen becomes readily available and it enters into the system and it's usable. And so we now get a very, very positive response to the body with high oxygen levels that don't require us to breathe as much. And so taking this back to where 
a, a great breath practice can come in. It's fun and it's great. And the Wim Hof method and holotropic breathing and breath of fire, which is a yogic practice can be really good and really cleansing. And, but they're not something that are long that, that are going to really apply the principles of dealing with CO2 better. And I found this out through experimentation, meaning my breath holds on a regular basis weren't necessarily longer after using any one of these super ventilation practices. It was only after applying some CO2 retention to these things that I actually created a physiological response. In essence, every person that we were dealing with, including professional athletes, didn't have real great CO2 tolerance tests. Some people have better than others, and this is just physiology. But the fact is, is that this comes back to where having a breath practice is really important. And I think more than just having a super ventilation practice is really important. You must have something attached to that that is dealing with the CO2 because when we don't have good mechanics because we sit all day or we're more sedentary, we don't access our diaphragm as much. And so we're not practicing a lot of this real, our, our subconscious overrides everything. You know, our subconscious is 33 times 33,000 times more strong than our conscious state. So that overriding effect of, oh, I'm not real tolerant to CO2 right now. My breathing pattern is just going to subconsciously be short and rapid. So I may have more than 15 breaths. And we, we see people who have 20 or more breaths a day or, or, or a minute, you know, and that is a chronic hyperventilation problem. And it's blowing off CO2, which means your body's not dealing with O2 properly. And so we need that counterbalance. So things like apnea training or a cadence or a rhythm breathing where I'm getting pauses in there and learning how to deal with that becomes very important. And although we can have slightly great responses to that stuff after we've gone through that, the long-term changes that happen are massive. And that's where we see real uh, health changes occur, whether we're dealing with things like asthma or, or we're seeing, I'm not dealing with these things. I'm, I'm recommending things and, and I'm saying, hey, this may help, but you're going to need to consult a doctor. But we're actually involved in research right now that's going to be dealing with a lot of this stuff and, and, and can help a lot of people um, that, that are taking drugs that aren't really helping. And so if you can actually just play around with the breathing, it may inevitably end up helping with some of these physiological changes that we see, whether you're an athlete or not. No, this is fascinating. I could listen to you. You talk about breath work all day. And I know you mentioned the Wim Hof method, someone you've worked with before. Um, I mean, his practices, it's the 30 deep in, and then upon that 30th one, you exhale completely correct and hold that breath. Yes. So Wim Hof method is... Um, it would be 30 to 40 breaths, full inhale, relaxed exhale, and then you'd breath hold on an exhale, and then you do cold immersion after you've gone through a lot of this stuff. So after you've done three or four rounds, you go do some cold immersion stuff. And that's what Wim Hof method kind of really is. You were mentioning some of the retention there of the CO2. Anything you would recommend to kind of change that a bit of your priming for a workout? Um, for sure. 
Um, you know, not everything would need you to be doing some, you know, like a Wim Hof thing. Um, and, and, and once we start to move into different breath holds or different timing of things, we start to exit outside of Wim Hof, but it, you know, it definitely, I think charging up to some degree, depending upon what you're doing, but also just getting the respiratory system warmed up is a huge thing. And anybody who's participated in sports or who's been an athlete to some degree can, can relate to the, I get 10 or 20 minutes into a run or a workout or something I'm doing. And I finally feel like I'm at a point where I can go on forever or I'm warmed up or I feel good. And that point is actually where your respiratory system is catching up with your muscular and cardiovascular systems. And so we've learned how to change that. And, and recent research has also shown that using a resistance, a resistance breathing device in a warm-up will actually change the, the workout itself by as much as 20%. And that would be so, something like a training mask, correct? That's something like a training mask or expand along or even using a straw. Or if you really want to get cool with it, try 10 minutes of just nasal breathing in your warm up. Oh, perfect. So anytime, like, like anytime you're warming up, you go too hard, you can't nasal breathe. So you've got to slow it down and it's perfectly fine to go hard if you just stick to nasal breathing. And although you may be, you know, getting snot and stuff coming out, you're, you're, the adaptation to this is you do less of that and it becomes easier and your system starts to adapt to this and you become a much more efficient human being within your metabolic processes. Yeah. I know the nasal breathing is something we talked about before and I've been implementing that and I did an interval workout the other day and my recovery was just unbelievable because of that. So that's something I definitely think my Isn't listeners it should crazy? It's unbelievable. I, I know you were talking about it and I was like, I, I, I don't think this could make that much of a difference, but it really has. I, I know. And it's such a pain in the ass at first when you, <laughs> when you go through the learning curve of it, you're like, this can't work. And, but it's then like, all of a sudden it's like, holy crap. Like, have you noticed anything with your sleep? Like, are you breathing more through your nose? Um, cause that's some of the stuff that a lot, I mean, I saw, but a lot of people that I've talked to are like, Whoa, like my sleeping has changed. Oh, I mean, I, it's something I've been keeping conscious of the entire day, uh, that nasal breathing. And I even just think my overall health recovery last week, cross country flight, multiple nights of four and less hours of sleep. And I did the cold immersion and the nasal breathing. And I just felt recharged and revigorated every single time. So I love implementing that. Yep. Great, man. And then, yeah. And then I know you're someone also who's a huge fan of the heat and cold exposure um, with ice baths, sauna. Uh, we had Dave Asprey on the other day. He was talking about this on the podcast. What is your cold and heat practice like? And what are some benefits you see out of it? Um, I, I try and do heat and ice every day. That doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I am fortunate right now. We are fortunate. Um, although my, my, my wife doesn't participate as much as I do, uh, that we live in a cold climate in the winter um, and very cold. So I can keep a tub of water outside and it stays in the 30s, um, even throughout the day when it's like 50 or 60 degrees because at night it's dropping into the 20s. So 
there's there's probably a layer of ice right now on the tub. Uh, I have not done it today. I may end up doing it at the end of the day. I try and remember to do it at the end of the day. Sometimes I really try and do it in the morning where I just start my day. And I'll tell you right now, the response to cold immersion in the morning and even at night when you start to adapt is your body learns how to upregulate and downregulate really quickly. So ice, the cold is, you know, Wim Hof, is the Iceman. And this is what he's literally known for is his ability, his, his adaptation to the cold. And I still talk to Wim on a fairly, uh, routine basis, you know, at least every couple of weeks. Um, so it's, you know, his whole thing is a, you know, Hey, what what can the cold do for you and what does it teach you and because it is such a stressful thing literally i think cold could could be used as torture to a large degree for many people and and as long as you took them out and and warmed them back up and stuck them back in, it's like you know because it never changes. It's never going to get warm. It doesn't matter if you ever adapt or not. You know, you can learn to love it. Um, and that's where I think the real adaptation comes in is where you really learn to love getting in the cold. But the fact is, is there's still that process that you have to go through with it to adapt. But the adaptation to it is it teaches the body so many things and there's so many hormonal benefits. Hormesis is a part of this whole thing mitochondrial biogenesis. So you're developing more mitochondria. Um, they, they've seen in, 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 um, uh, Scandinavian cultures where largely, you know, where they the diet hasn't shifted to all sugar, um, where you see people who don't have signs of, uh, Alzheimer's disease things that, you know, it staves off a lot of the brain and mental disorders that we, we, we see, and we don't exactly know why. Um, but a large part of, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick's work is where she's seen where it actually kind of kills off some brain cells as you do it. But then the, the, it, it triggers something when you get out of the cold to rebuild the synapses and the connections to the brain in, in almost a superior way. So it's giving you a lot of mental clarity as well. Um, so it, it's kind of endless with what the cold can do. And, and the biggest physiological response I can say for at least from a performance standpoint is blood being able to get to places in a much easier fashion, meaning we create more pathways. We create more ways for the system for the for blood to get there, so so your body's response when you go into the cold and then you warm up is, hey, if you're going to keep doing this, I'm going to start creating more places for blood to go, and that allows the body as an athlete to perform with more places to send blood and recover and get things, get nutrients to, and and do a lot of things. And in essence, you don't get as cold anymore. So you can be in climates where, you know, it's much colder, yet you're feeling warmer. No, there's so many fascinating studies out right now. And you mentioned Dr. Rhonda Patrick and some of her work's unbelievable. So I'll make sure to link that up. So you mentioned, I saw some of your pictures uh, on Instagram the other day, and you are at I Am Unscared. Um, you've got the cold tub out there. 
How long do you typically ice bath for? And what are the temperatures? It kind of seems like it might be fluctuating for you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm usually somewhere in the three minute range. I, I, I mean, I can do five minutes or whatever, or 10 minutes if I wanted, but there's no real, I don't see massive, um, I, I, I just don't see massive benefits for people who are not trying to break world records, uh, in ice to do that. But, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, like Wim, Wim is known as the ice man and he truly is. Um, there are other people who are ice people as well, or cold people. And those are got, those are the, the men, uh, the Buddhist monks who participate in Tumo, which is T U M M O meditation. And they have learned, they've been doing this for centuries, um, to heat, learn how to heat up the core and the body to a degree that can be quite uncomfortable. If you ever learn how to do it. Um, I, I have been screwing around with this and a buddy of mine has become quite versed in it who, uh, lives very close to me. Um, and you can end up heating your body up to the point of like you're sweating profusely all day long. And these guys, these monks will sit in the ice, they'll sit in the snow and put cold sheets over them and make them steam and dry them off, dry (laughs) them with body heat. And I, I think for a large, to a large degree, a lot of these guys aren't going out and breaking world records because as monks, they don't feel like that is the place where (laughs) they're, suited versus just, uh, meditating, um, which is their own world record to some degree. Oh, no, that's fascinating. I'm looking forward to following you and seeing what comes out of that. Uh, I know we wanted to hit on a little bit of the heat. Are you using a sauna at all? Are you doing hot, cold contrasts? Any implementation there? Yeah, I, I use a sauna. I, I, I use a sauna, but I also use, you know, uh, I'll use, uh, hot showers or hot baths as well. Um, I do that all the time. It, it's a, you know, I've got a couple guys coming into town tomorrow from a magazine called We Move, um, or actually on Thursday. And so I'm going to take them up because we, we live at about 30, I don't know, 3,100 feet um, out in central Oregon. And we're really close to the Cascade, to some, the Cascade Mountains, which get up pretty high. And so we can get in about 20 minutes up to about seven, 8,000 feet, which is literally at about 15 feet of snow right now. And we'll, I'm going to take them up to a lake that we uh, that we've got. We've got hundreds of lakes around here, but I'm going to take them up to a lake to where we can go actually get into the lake, break some ice, and get into the lake, which is really cool. And it's a totally different experience than getting into your tub or getting into ice. And it's interesting because when you're in cold air or cold climates, the cold water and ice isn't actually as cold, you know. Where when you're in hot or warmer climates, it's really cold. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, no, the, the, the real lake stuff is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, man. And move, but uh, the coldest thing I've ever been in is there's actually a river around, uh, down the road from us that, um, flows out of, uh, it, it just comes out of the ground because we've got so much, um, water underneath us here. Like we've got something like the, the size of the great lakes of groundwater underneath us and, the water that comes out is coming from the mountains and it's, uh, it's glacial water and year round, it's like 35 degrees or something. So it's just flowing 35 degree water. And that is the absolutely coldest thing I've ever been (laughs) in. 
because you can't, you know, one, you're, you're not static. When you're static, you can create a heat layer. If you've got something moving, it's just like wind. It'll break you down real quick. <laughs> How so long were you submerged being, in that? Like three minutes, much different than sitting in the tub for three minutes. Huh. <laughs> no, that'll definitely wake you up for sure. So I'd like to transition a little bit. Um, I know you're someone who's worked closely a lot of athletes with their diet. What are you seeing right now in terms of your diet and then things that people need to start changing about theirs? Um, you know, the thing with me is that I actually change things up quite a bit. Um, although I am a firm believer um, that there is no such thing as we all should be following the same thing. Um Nutrition, unfortunately, is a very dogmatic and religious type thing. And there's nothing wrong with religion until man kind of gets involved and tries to control it. Um, so, <laughs> and, and that's where we land with nutrition because anybody really talking about or being an expert in nutrition, I've tried to stay away from this. And in, in essence, you know, I, it's, it's such a tricky place, but it's like the moment you become an expert in nutrition, you've now created some dogmatic thing. <laughs> and that I think that's my life's purpose is to stay away from dogma or catch myself when I get caught in dogma and, and remap what I'm doing. Uh, for me, low carbohydrate intake is a very good thing. Now, if I start training a whole lot with more intensity, um, then I will need to add more carbohydrate sources. And this is no rocket science here. And it's a duh question. It's a duh thing for a lot of people. Um, that said, I'm somebody who is who uses cyclical ketosis to a large degree just based on the fact that I fast quite often. Um, I, I have come under the f experience that fasting has treated me very well. Um, and I try to fast at least 24 hours once a week. And then sometimes, you know, once every six months or so, I'll, I'll probably go for like a two or three day fast. Um, but usually each day I don't start eating until around noon. Um, but like I said, that changes. And when I start training more and I start doing more, I actually move more into like, I will eat like three or four times a day. Um, but that largely includes upping my vegetable, uh, intake, uh, astronomically and where to, to the point to where I can't consume it. If I'm eating it normally, I have to actually blend it. So I put it into like kind of smoothie form and I'll drink it. Um, so that's kind of where those changes, I, I, I would consider myself somebody who just believes food, real food is, is, is what we should be eating, but we shouldn't be eating a lot of it all the time. Um, there are times we should be eating, but, but we should not eat. And, and this goes for athletes as well. And, and I'm, you know, a lot of athletes are under cal, they use terms under calorie. And I think that's just a term for not understanding metabolic process. And if you're going to actually be going a lot more high intensity, you actually have to, you know, throw in some more carbohydrate sources and those can come from vegetables and tubers and, and, and root vegetables and things like that very easily. Um, supplementing or using fast acting carbohydrates, I think is a quick, quick 
way to confuse yourself to, I, I think it's an illusion that we've created in trying to stave off famine. And, and that's more or less where quick acting carbohydrate sources came from was a way, a means of saving society or the, the world from extinction to a large degree. Um, you know, you take rices and grains and things like that, which I don't have a problem with at all if they're properly used, you know, um, meaning using grains in, 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 a, in a form that ferments them, you know, and, and rice is, you know, there aren't a whole lot of problems, but like my wife has an allergy to rice, so she has to stay away from rice, oddly enough. So at any rate, that's kind of where I'm at with nutrition. I, I, I think from a nutrition perspective, you have to understand our, our first component of fuel. And the top line order comes right back to where we started kind of this conversation, which is about breathing and which relates to oxygen. And oxygen is actually the body's number one source of fuel. And if you don't learn how to utilize oxygen appropriately, don't, don't even start with your macronutrients because you've got your body's number one source of dealing with anything is to oxidize that fat that's on that body and, and create a readily available source. And so we've got an in, insurmountable use of fuel on our bodies through fat utilization. And just talking to you and you utilizing the nasal breathing only, you're actually learning how to become a highly, highly oxidative being, which is a very positive thing. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a light bulb and a, a head explode moment there for a lot of people realizing what they can do with their breath work. And then I love you talking about the real food aspect. One of the things I've heard you mention in the past is why do people take things during the training they wouldn't eat during the rest of the day? And I love seeing the transition back to more real food when I've seen so many people just go with simple supplements to take care of those things. Correct. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, and I, and I should put, put out, I should point out and full disclosures that I actually do own a supplement company and I own a company where we created a fuel source and a recovery source in one product based on the fact that, you know, doing an endurance event there, it can be difficult to navigate real food. Yet, if we look back on time, there, you know, uh, Chris McDougall's work with natural born heroes really points out a lot of things in that we, you know, there were people who were running back to back ultra marathons prior to supplements being <laughs> ever made and water stations ever being available. And, um, the, you know, but we, we figured out that this whole, I mean, it, it, what's, what's weird is like things like ultra marathoning where the primary thing that they're handing out is sugar at aid stations, whether it's in food form or not, most of the fuel sources that are being used are sugar components so that you can refuel your glycogen stores. And if you're somebody who's doing an ultra marathon, you're not actually tapping into even slow glycolysis, although you're running in and out of it if you're go going hard, but we saw a need for figuring that, that mechanism out. And that's why we designed three fuel, which, utilizes a carbohydrate that is an, an HDP waxy maze that is a very, very, very slow burning carbohydrate. It actually takes three hours to kick in. But we also added medium chain fats from coconut milk 
and we have a protein source in there that's fast, that's absorbed. And, and we did that because I created this because we saw that need of people were creating things that were based off of sugar and justifying it to sell a product. And I'm not trying to sell a product. I created something. And if I was, I, my main focus would have been this supplement company, which started over five years ago. And rarely people fucking are like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize you had a supplement company. And, and it, it, so it's not a main it, this isn't a big thing for me to go around hawking or pitching and I'm not trying to pitch it now, but it was something we created and I'm trying to create this closure in that we are trying to create a, a much better or cleaner source for human beings to function off of. Yeah, no, I mean, your product is, is much different than someone throwing it down a, a complete simple sugar. Yours is a complete product and offers a ton of different things. So I didn't want you to think I was going a different direction there, but you also- No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I mean- create this- Yeah, no, thanks for being open with that. So I know you mentioned a little bit of that training. Um, so how has your training, both strength and conditioning, changed over the past few years? Anything you're really working on right now? Um, I'm working on being <laughs> I happy. I, I think that's my own <laughs> work. Um, that said, I enjoy lifting heavy things at least once or twice a week. Um, I enjoy... I, I enjoy more doing high intensity aerobic work. Um, I really love how I feel after I've done some really hard aerobic or high anaerobic work uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's on my bike or it's running or, uh, you know, it's on the erg or, you know, anything that involves real aerobic work or hiking or just fucking doing crazy yard work. Like I I'm basically in what a lot of my friends are referring to as ranch strong now. Um, <laughs> it, after like two months of like living out here, I went and we did this, I, I didn't experience an XPT experience. And you know, uh, somebody who I work with was like, Whoa, dude, what have you been doing? Like <laughs> leaned out and I hadn't even been like working out or anything but I had been moving and we had been building stuff and I had been building fences and cleaning like shoveling snow. And I mean, you shovel snow all day. You basically just deadlift it all day, you know, just like, oh, yeah. so, you know, you, you start to connect dots on the realities of what it is. These movements and these things mean when you really, really want to pay attention to it. And we all hear about it since, you know, the CrossFit phenomenon took shape you know, not long ago. And a lot of the functional training became exposed. And, 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 you know, there's, I, I, there, there's like all this weird stuff we've done in the past where it's like, you're doing physio ball balance stuff into like whatever <laughs> and they're calling it functional <laughs> training. And, you know, I even participated in that stuff because it was hard. And just because it's hard does not make it functional. And you have to be able to map out your day or your life for it to be functional. And there at no point, you know, even on a surfboard or skateboard, was I doing things like I was doing on balance boards and, you know, well, not necessarily balance boards, but I would say balancing on a physio ball or doing like overhead squats, standing on a physio ball, which is something I've done. Right. <laughs> Like fucking 12 years ago, but I did it. 
right? And I'm going to, you know, I, I got to own up to the bullshit that I've done. <laughs> there was no transference of that to anything I do. It didn't make me a better surfer. It didn't make me a better skateboarder. But I will tell you what, getting my squat up and being able to deadlift and being able to run fast all tra have transferred over to being a ranch hand. Um, and being a ranch hand has transferred over to the deadlift, the back squat, and, and you know all of these other things and running. So it, it, like I, I've been able to connect a lot of those dots. And so my, my whole strength and conditioning program is, you know, I try and, you know, do some lifting and gym work at least two or three days a week. Um, when I'm on the road, it's a different story and I stick to body weight. I largely stick to body weight stuff anyway, because I feel better doing that. Um, but you know, it, it's, I'm testing, you know, everything all the time, but my biggest thing lately, I mean, in the last five years has really just been, how do I apply? Where does the breath work apply and where does it not? Yeah. It's crazy how just getting up and moving, you, you mentioned kind of how you were shoveling snow. We had a tree go down in their yard. Um, me and my wife, we had the axes out chopping it up and the workout we got from that and then lugging it out to the street was just unbelievable. And then you also mentioned XPT Life, uh, which you co-founded with big wave surfer Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. You want to talk a little bit about XPT and what your experiences are like there? Yeah, sure. Um, that is like, like, like you've pointed out is it was a business I started with Laird and Gabby. And, um, you know, originally it was, you know, Gabby approached me about starting this thing and helping Laird out to get his water training out to kind of the world because it's really revolutionary. And, um, you know, I, he, he's been, they, they have been sitting on this thing for 15 plus years. Um, you know, and I, I met Laird and Gabby about five years ago and we Laird and I in particular, G Gabby as well, but Laird and I in particular just hit it off because he is an athlete, um, is much like me as a coach and kind of a tinkerer, you know, or research guy. And I'm always looking for where nature's kind of role or where nature takes a role in what it is we're doing. And it's just like what, what we were talking about with the strength and conditioning, you know, where does it apply? And Laird is the utmost of the, 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 the pinnacle of, um, if it doesn't work, I get rid of it. If it does, <laughs> I keep it. Um, and we have gone through several things and iterations. And one of those things, you know, the, the water training and how it's evolved and what it's done. And he, that was why we started the business. And, and it was like, Hey, does this make sense? And it was like, yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, let me help you design out or create something that you can get what you've been doing. I mean, he's got this group of people that are diehards up in Malibu that literally are pining every single season for him to get back to Malibu <laughs> to start doing the water training again. And it's a select group of people that really, um, lend well and are, you know, very welcomed, but it, it's such a unique thing that I, you know, the rest of the world needed to hear about it. So at any rate, we created the business model that was based off of kind of the lifestyle that these, that these two live and they live a, a very unique lifestyle. He is committed to surfing. 
um, and he is committed to his family. And I think that's something the world that, that, that people don't understand. People think Laird Hamilton is this big wave surfer. Laird Hamilton is, but what he really is, is he's committed. And he's been committed to surfing since the day he rode a, a wave. You know, whether that was on Bill Hamilton's back going into a barrel on the beach or if it started before then, and I'm just going off of what it is I know. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, it, 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 it's been his commitment to learn from that stage of, of being on the uh, uh, little waves on the beach to, you know, going out in Hanalei Bay when it's, you know, 50 plus feet and, you know, or even close even bigger, even a hundred or more at some points on certain reefs to where he's riding waves. And it's, that's, that's the commitment is that no matter what's going on, that is what it is. And, and his training when he's not doing that is preparing him for that. And so that was more or less why it was so important to get this stuff out and for people to see. And, 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 you know, we dose people with the entire aspect of it. And, and to be, I mean, Laird's been doing ice and heat, much longer than, you know, we ran into a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, um, he, because of what he's felt off of it. And so, you know, he, he was the first one to stick me in an ice bath, um, five years ago and, uh, they've been doing the ice and heat thing for quite some time. So I, you know, we, we put people, we expose people through that. We take them through, you know, uh, water training stuff. We take them through the gym stuff that I do. Um, we take them through, the eating habits, the stuff that we do, um, you know, it just a whole aspect and it's kind of just a three day experience of hanging out and understanding, Hey, life isn't about sitting in front of a computer or in an office all day. You need to experience it. And, and, and that's the essence of what it is we're doing. Yeah. That lifestyle experience you guys have created. Uh, I've seen it from afar with the videos and I'll definitely link those up because some of the stuff you guys do is fascinating and definitely hoping to make it out to one of those events at some point. Uh, I know we want to be respectful of your time. Just a little, a few more things we want to cover. I know you're familiar with Stephen Kotler um, and his most recent book, uh, Stealing Fire. I want to hit on flow state a little bit, um, both how you tap into it and why you think getting into a flow state is so essential. Um, well, Kotler's work is of the utmost importance um, because you need somebody to be able to interpret what it is that's happening to the rest of the world. And that's part of, you know, a lot of our jobs is to be able to break things down and explain them. Um, I, I flow state is more or less that, 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 that place where you're on the verge of, you know, um, obsessive compulsive and, um, or absolutely, um, just, you know, um, it, it, it's kind of, a it, it really, for me, is a place of extreme focus and nothing can really break that. And that can happen while you're working. That can happen while you're playing. That can happen while you're doing anything. Um, and, and it really is where, you know, the mind lets go and it's the body, you know, the body just goes and we've all been there, but we're trying to figure it, figure out how to stay there. And that's the difficult part. And I believe um, that a lot of the breath practice work that we've been doing really sets that up and puts us into those places much quicker. 
Fascinating. And I, I mean, I just love it. All the work he's done, uh, all the info there. And I know when we were hitting on breath work a little while ago, that helped me tap into flow state. I also want to talk a little bit about uh, your new book that's coming out, I think this July called Unplugged. It's about evolve from technology to upgrade your fitness performance. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that and where the thoughts behind that book came into play for you? Yeah. I mean, in, in bringing back up flow, you know, it's, it's interesting because when technology becomes a part of what we're doing and we become reliant, this is what my experience has been is I've become, I've been reliant on technology for training and research, which is a very normal thing. But as, as a person and somebody who's trying to just be more functional, technology can be a hindrance to a lot of degree. And the problem is, is that it really does take you out of that flow state. Because if I'm glued to my heart rate monitor or something telling me when, how much I'm doing or what I'm doing, then I'm no longer present and I'm no longer in that place where I want to be. And so unplugged is really an experience of I've, I've got a few friends that are pretty smart people and Dr. Andy Galpin is one of them and he's an incredible researcher and scientist and we felt that collaborating on how he does research and science um, and, and how I've been able to do it as somebody who doesn't have a PhD, but this has been the basis of my, basically my job <laughs> um, and, and, and to communicate my experience to people, um, how they relate and how they don't and where we need to be able to look at research um, and, and where we actually need to go experience it ourselves and, and how to do that. And, and I think as a species, we get really lost or tied up in a lot of things and, 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 and technology is one of them. You know, we're, we're, we're the only real species that really is completely self-centered and thinks about itself all day long. And I'm, I, I'm, I fit into this, but yet is very, very just absolutely concerned with what everybody else thinks of us. And so if I don't talk about my numbers or my heart rate zones or where I've been, it's like, I'm not validated. <laughs> and, and none of that at the end of the day really makes a, a, a shit like a difference. But the fact is, is somebody like me, if, if, if you do want to use technology, there's a way to use it so that it makes sense. And, and you can actually move forward and, and become more, intact with nature. And I think if we're using technology to connect us back to what nature has provided, then, then we're in the right place. And, you know, that, that's just my feeling on it and, and the way I feel about it. So. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be a major shift, uh, moving forward, which is so fascinating why you're coming out with this book. I know it's getting released on July 11th, so we'll link up. I know it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. Make sure we'll direct uh, our listeners to that. So I know we've got one thing left uh, before we get going, but if you could have my listeners implement one thing into their lives, what would it be? A breath practice. Clean and simple. simple. I love it. Yep. We've gone into much detail with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're about to launch PSE Pro 2.0, which will have PSE Breathe, which will be its own program to where you will have, there is breathing breath practice for the active people or people who just want to act, 
you know, do some different breathing stuff. There's several different things that you can do throughout the day, whether you're going to train or you're not and you where to implement them. And it's going to be, uh, it'll be the first of its kind, um, that ever will be launched and it's going to be pretty awesome. So, but we've got a lot of stuff with regards to sport and actually training and, 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 and being more connected into being a more optimal human and, you know, learning about yourself and the PSE pro 2.0 is going to be pretty badass. So that's going to be that. I think that, that launch the hard launch on that is May 8th. May 8th for PSE Pro 2.0. I cannot wait for that. You know, I'll be all over that one. Uh, how else can my listeners uh, stay connected with you? Uh, my Instagram account, you can follow um, at I am Unscared or at Power Speed Endurance. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, which is at Brian McKenzie, or you can follow at PS, Power Speed Endurance. Um, and then um, what else do I have? I get, I, I've got a Facebook fan page as well. I don't, I'm not super active. I like to post information on there. Um, but those are basically the means of staying in up to date with what I'm doing and where we're going. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we get everything linked up there. Brian, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I could go on for hours talking with you about all this stuff. So thanks so much and looking forward to reading Unplugged when it comes out. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate your time. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.